Welcome back, podcast listeners. This is episode 53. I'm your host, Mr. Mike Giant. And uh, today I wanted to reminisce on 1997. Uh, At the time, I was living on Oak Street in uh, San Francisco, very close to the Lower Haight neighborhood, um, and just a a few blocks from Alamo Square. Uh, It was a big, old, uh, crooked Victorian house. It was super drafty, um, and it creaked, and... (laughs) had all kinds of problems, but it was really fun. I lived with some really cool artist friends there and one of the founders of Burning Man. There were a lot of uh, people that would roll through there that were visitors of one of us, and so our living room was often kind of like a a hostel, (laughs) which was cool, which actually ended up saving my ass uh, in a story I'll tell uh, later in the podcast as we go along, um, some visitors really helped me out. <laughs> but uh, I guess uh, early in that year, uh, I met a girl. Uh, I'll call her Allie. That's not her name. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but uh, I'll call her Allie. I don't need to blow her up. Um, although I really doubt she'd ever hear this. Um, But in any case, um, I was hanging out at the time with my buddy Noah Hurwitz, and uh, he was like a computer genius dude, was doing 3D animation and stuff like that. And again, this was 1997, so that was some really cutting-edge shit back then. And uh, he was also really into drum and bass music, and we would just kick it. I really liked him, and he knew where the cool shit was happening. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I think he took me to 111 Minna and uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that place but it's a 111 Minna Gallery M-I-N-N-A it's actually the address um, it's in Soma in San Francisco I think it's still there it's gone through a lot of changes over the years but uh, back in uh, 97 it was just a brand new thing Um and it wasn't very big. They later on expanded, um, but originally it wasn't very big. Um, and if you knew the owners um, and you were cool, you could stop by the bar and have a drink. Um, and I don't know, again, I don't think they were officially open yet at that point. Uh, but I remember, uh, I remember meeting Allie. Uh, she knew Noah. I think she was really tight with Noah's uh, girlfriend at the time. Um, and so I think she had already had a, a bit of people dropping my name in her ear here and there. Um, so when we finally met, we were both pretty excited to meet each other because our friends had been hyping it up. And uh, I remember uh, in particular, she had on latex pants, which were like black really shiny, look like plastic, and they they fit her legs really, really nice. And she was pretty tall, probably five foot ten, really, really dark hair, black, black hair, and a lot of black body hair, too. Uh, I think she told me that she had some, like, gypsy blood in her, and that explained why uh, 
she was so hairy. I remember sometimes I'd watch her uh, wax her uh, like upper lip and her like cheeks a little bit and even uh, between her eyebrows because she would just get really hairy really quick and it was super obvious so it was something she had to stay on top of and uh, I always felt it was cool that she would uh, do that in front of me even that we were that close you know eventually <laughs> I don't suppose she did that right away um, but, uh, she was super cool, super hot, you know, I, the, the latex thing really had me going. At the time, I was buying a magazine here and there called Skin 2, uh, I'm not sure where it was from, probably Europe, um, but it was all about, like, latex and all that kind of, like, uh, sexy fetish wear, and, uh, I was in San Francisco, and I was kind of seeing that stuff around, and, uh, just kind of over time developed a taste for it. Not that it was something I sought out or needed, um, but just thought it was just a cool style, one of many that were out there, and that certain people could pull it off, and uh, Allie sure could. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think we just kind of, I don't, I don't think we hooked up right away. I think we made out that first night that we met and hung out i remember we uh left the bar and might have just where was she living i might have even walked her home because she lived about i'd say eight blocks from there in a loft which was some fucking super badass shit <laughs> like even in 97 you know if you lived in one of the the uh, soma lofts you were balling because those were highly, um, people really wanted to live in them. Um, they're fucking cool, and hers was super cool. Um, if I remember right, if I remember right, I walked her back to her place. We might have taken a Mission Street bus up there to save some time, and she might have invited me up to her apartment in the loft, and I think I declined, but gave her a, a really good goodnight kiss and told her I'd really like to hang out again. And then I think I, I think the next time I, uh, I met her, um, she just invited me up and we started making out and we had sex right away. And it was exciting and awesome. I it had kind of built up since the, the first date. I was really, really feeling it, feeling the chemistry. It was really obvious. And, uh, yeah, when you finally hook up, man, that shit's fucking electric fire. <laughs> Good times. Um, <coughs> and, uh, I remember just tripping out on her pad. Um, if I remember right, she lived above, um, California Choppers, which is, I think, on the corner where it used to be kind of in the middle of the block. And if I remember right, it was on 11th Street um, between Mission and Howard. Uh, you could probably go to that spot. And I don't know if her building is still standing. A lot of that stuff down there has been leveled and redone. Um, and I remember the, the chopper thing because once in a while we would be at her place and it would be like 2 o'clock in the morning 
and we would start to hear the revving of motorcycles, you know, and it was, I think it was just downstairs. And usually the guys weren't there after, say, 8 o'clock at night. But I think once in a while, uh, especially on the weekends, they would party some and probably be down there tinkering on some motor or souping some shit up, and they would want to fire it up and see how it would, if it was working, and we're probably pretty drunk and high at the time, and weren't really thinking about how much noise it would make or who was living upstairs. But I remember that happening once or twice, and she, without skipping a beat, would just put some clothes on, and she'd go to the back door, because there was like a staircase that went just down to the back where they were, and she just politely, you know, told them, hey, guys, it's like 2 in the morning. We're, we're trying to sleep. Sorry. You know, we're, we're just upstairs. And they would always be really apologetic. I remember overhearing the whole thing one night. And uh, she would come back up the stairs, and it would be quiet again. They were. It was just funny. It would happen once in a while. Fucking biker dudes. <laughs> but her place was super sick. Otherwise, it had like a... It, it had like 15 foot ceilings and was probably honestly 3,000 square feet. It was like the whole floor was one loft and it was up on the second floor and uh, overlooked the street. There was a whole wall of windows across the, the front. As you walked in the front door and looked to the left, you could see all the way across the loft to the, the wall of windows. And on the back wall, they had like two little apartments built out. Uh, one for Allie and one for this um, married couple that lived there. And uh, it was just super fucking cool. I, I, I felt like uh, really uh, humbled to be dating this fucking cool ass lady. She was a graphic designer uh, by trade. Um, at the time, I don't know, I think she was working for a firm and... Uh, that's just it. I, th I think later on in the relationship, she went f full freelance. And I thought that was some baller shit, too, to just be totally on your own. Because I hadn't worked up the courage to do that in my own career at that point. Um, but uh, let's see. Let me get back to my notes. Oh, yeah. She had, like, a, the the bathroom in the place was, like, you had to go outside the front door of the actual loft and go down a hallway. It was the same hallway that connected to the stairs that went all the way down to the street. It was really strange. So you'd have to walk in the back, and the shower was like, it was like a room, basically. And it had like, um, I think it was brick walls and a concrete floor, and it just had... Uh, a drain in the center of the room and it, if I remember right it had like these uh those red kind of heat lamps and there was a few of those in there um but it was quite big and it had like if I remember right there was some concrete bench seating it 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 seemed like it had been built out to have like group um showers like maybe like sexy time in there <laughs> with a lot of people because it was that big it seemed really strange you know that it would have just been built like that uh, i can't imagine another reason it was really 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 strange um but it was really fun i i think the 
the shower head was just kind of overhead in the middle of the room. And so you'd have to stand in the middle to uh, actually take a shower. It was just really bizarre. Um, but I, I remember um, fucking Allie in there for, God, we would be in there for like an hour sometimes with just like a stool just kind of moving around in the room and it would get really steamy in there. And uh, yeah, it, was, it would get like a sauna as well, which I guess would explain a lot of the, the bench seating along the edges. Um, I don't honestly remember if the room was painted or anything. I just remember it being red in there all the time, but I think that was because of the lamps. Um, but goddamn, that was fun. Um, <laughs> it was just such a trip because I'd have to wear like a bathrobe and flip-flops and bring towels and we'd have to go into the room and shower and play or whatever and then have to march back into the loft and we were the only ones living on the whole floor it was really it was really funny <laughs> but uh i remember too she had a a cat that fucking hated me for some reason i forget i wish i could remember the cat's name but it would occasionally just like uh claw me <laughs> whenever it kind of saw an opportunity a little bastard um <laughs> I ended up really liking the cat, but it, it never really kind of uh, warmed up to me. <laughs> I remember, too, she would sing, uh, she could play guitar really good, and she would sing Patsy Klein songs. And I remember, uh, I think I walked back into her little apartment in the loft, and she was playing. And uh, she put the guitar down when I walked in, and I was like, hey, would you mind continuing to play? It sounds cool. I like it. You sound good. And she was super shy about it. But uh, she would she would end up playing for me a whole bunch. I, I always loved that. It always made me, uh, I don't know, gave me like dreamy eyes, having this really uh, talented girlfriend. I should say, too, she was a little older than me. And uh, that was kind of new, and I thought it was, uh, I don't know, I just felt like it was really, I felt honored, because I was kind of a dirtbag. I was working at Think Skateboards. I was skateboarding kind of all over and riding a bicycle. I, I didn't have a car. Uh, I wasn't making much money at all. I had a, a tiny room in a crazy old Victorian house, and she was really killing it. Uh, so I was really humbled. You know, that just kind of made me, uh, uh, I don't know, just it was part of what made me attracted to her. And uh, the, the Patsy Klein stuff was was kind of the same. You know, I'd watch her play and I'd end up getting hard and she'd notice and we'd just start fucking. And man, she, she liked to get down. I think she was, uh, she might have had some mental health issues. Um, that I wasn't really tripping on. Um, I just kind of chalked it up to her personality, you know? Um, yeah, I wasn't really tripping on that stuff so much. Um, but it did seem like, uh, she, she, she got more out of sex than just an orgasm. That it was, like, important for her mental stability and uh, her confidence in the relationship, 
um, if she felt, I think, like, um, uh, had, like, low self-esteem or something, you know, she knew she could count on me to, like, uh, give her, uh, full attention, you know, and fuck her brains out, you know, (laughs) and, uh, so, you know, I, I wasn't really tripping on it. I, I just thought she had a, a high sex drive, and she did, and and we did have sex there a lot, and you know I'm talking, you know, three or four times each night that we would see each other, and often again in the morning. Um, she, she showed me pretty quickly that she enjoyed anal sex and even uh preferred it over vaginal sex which was new for me uh i was used to girls just being like no keep that dick away from my butthole please (laughs) and uh ali was like wow yeah no i I want it in there It, it it feels better i have stronger orgasms when there's a dick in my in my ass and I was like, well, fuck, that's very exciting, <laughs> very uh, different. So I was I was really into it. But I remember she had this whole, uh, <clears throat> it was like a routine. She would take a, a really long hot shower and get super, super clean. Um, she would give herself uh, an enema and get her asshole cleaned out super, super clean too. Um, and I, I forget what she, you know, if she douched and stuff, it was really more about the enema for sure to make sure her asshole was clean. Um, cause she would get really kind of grossed out if I pulled out and there was a little like poop on, on the condom or something. And I should say, I always used a condom when I had sex with Allie. Um, yeah, just one of those things I, uh, I'd gotten used to that. I lost my virginity with a condom on, so I just always use them. I always had them with me just in case, kind of, there might be an opportunity. <laughs> Often they just sat in my pocket. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was just one of those things. Always, always. Um, but with her, too, is she uh, really needed to see me come for whatever reason, I think she really needed to see that validation. I wonder if she dated a guy that like would fake orgasms or something. So she just really, really needed to see it. And like, if I, uh, came inside of her and she didn't see it, she'd be really, really disappointed and almost angry with me. Like, what the fuck, dude? (laughs) You know, (laughs) which, again, I wasn't really, I wasn't tripping on it, you know. Uh, Whatever turns her on kind of thing, you know. Um, But it was, it was, um, yeah, it was wild. And it was kind of some porno shit, you know. She really wanted me to come in her mouth every time. Um, Like, yeah, it was, you know, if, I don't know, it's like a guy's dream come true on some level, you know, but I was, I wasn't, it wasn't something I was leaning towards or ever asked her to do, but, uh, yeah, she almost, like I say, she demanded it and would be really disappointed if I didn't, and, uh, so, regardless, um, fuck, man, the the sex was amazing with her. I remember she would 
shaved most of her pussy except for like a little like landing pad strip kind of thing um above her labia and clitoris and uh i thought that shit was super cute and of course it was super black like the rest of her hair and uh i remember too um she had in her uh oh actually no that was in the 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 apartment that she moved into i was recollecting something i was gonna add but i'll I'll add to that uh later um so yeah uh, god bless Allie. she she was fucking amazing um i guess i i did go i'll go into it in my notes here pretty quickly so pretty soon after um she moved to a loft at sixth street and natoma alley um down basically one of the worst blocks in San Francisco to this day, I suppose. I mean, it was absolutely fucking notorious. It was like the area between basically Howard Street and Market Street on 6th was a no-go zone. Very, very dangerous. Um, Many of my friends have seen straight-up murders happen in the street there. People overdosing, people losing their fucking minds, uh, sex on the street, you fucking name it. It is like crackhead ground zero. And it's just, like I say, it's, it's fucking dangerous. And it just happens to be right next to one of the main shopping districts. So you'd always see tourists walking through there just like, what the fuck is going on? Now, most of San Francisco is like 6th Street. It's dangerous as fuck. Uh, but b- back then, it was a big deal. And she was had the balls to move over there. And she rented out this whole floor all by herself. Um, It was the second floor above the street. Um, It had windows on two sides all the way around that window, the kind of warehouse um, metal frame windows. It was so fucking cool. I liked her other loft above California Choppers, but the second spot she had was just way fucking crazier. Um, But, and it was probably... 2,000 square feet, and like I say, she had the whole floor to herself, and uh, it had a washer and dryer, it had a huge modern kitchen, it had been recently renovated, it had curtains for all the windows, it was super sick, and like I said, I think that's the point at which she went fully freelance, and she had her like little office area built out with these nice tables and chairs and all her computers and scanners and things. And like I say, I was really enamored of her, you know, just how beautiful she was and how talented she was and driven in her career and didn't really need me around at all. It seemed like, like she would do just fine without some dude. But like I say, she, she liked my company and (laughs) sure loved my dick, but that was, uh, that was rad. And she had like a, in that place, uh, it had probably, damn, it probably had 20 foot ceilings in that place, to be honest, maybe 15 foot, but they were really, really, really high. And she had like a, her bedroom was like, um, built out, uh, against the back wall away from the windows and it had no windows of its own. So it was quite dark. Um, and, kind of claustrophobic because it was I think it was taller than it was wide um but one whole wall again like 15 feet all the way to the ceiling was a mirror 
I don't know if it was, it must have been a, a bunch of big mirrored pieces, but it, it made the room look huge, again, because of just how mirrors can make spaces look so much bigger. Um, but it was so fun to, like, fuck Angie and watch in this huge mirror. And we, we took that, we took advantage of that a lot. We watched ourselves have sex a lot. <laughs> And it was, it was really bizarre. I don't think I've ever had a situation like that ever since where I had like a big mirror right next to the bed. Um, but that was some, uh, that was some wild shit at, for, for sure. Cause it was like, we were already so fucking freaky and into each other that to, to, to kind of, we would stop each other and just be like, you know, she'd stop me and be like, Mike, look in the mirror. And I'd look up and I was just like, oh my fucking God. Cause it was just what I was looking at was so just hot and fucking horny and awesome. Oh my God, that fucking mirrored wall. God bless. And I remember too, sometimes, you know, we would get down and I'd finally bust and we would chill and she'd go to the bathroom to, clean up, maybe shower, and I'd be just there on the bed just in a daze of orgasm, and her fucking cat would fucking just jump up on the bed and just, like, claw me up a few times on the legs or the foot or some shit. Oh, my God, that little bastard, you know, it would just wait for its chance. I, I think it really hated to see me fuck her. It thought I was, like, hurting her or something. And that little bastard would fucking get me. And I remember one time, just as she was coming out of the bathroom, the cat attacked me, and I just lashed out my foot because uh, it hurt. It clawed my foot, and I, I kicked it across the room. And all she saw was me kicking her cat across the apartment. <laughs> and she, she missed the whole part where the cat had clawed me until I bled. <clears throat> I showed her later. She felt bad, but yeah, she was fucking pissed. Um, and she was really volatile in, in that way too. Like uh, she could change emotions on a dime without warning, uh, which I just kind of had to ride with. Um, she was just like a, I don't know. I just thought it was like a fiery personality and I had to, uh, just appreciate her for who she was, you know, not trip on it too much. Uh, I remember we went back over to 111 Minnow one time, and uh, Doze Green was there. If you've never heard of Doze, you should check him out, D-O-Z-E-G-R-E-E-N uh, -E -E on Instagram. Uh, Doze, he was like a Rocksteady crew breakdancer way back in the day. He was in some of the... Uh, like hip-hop documentaries and stuff like Star Wars uh, as a breakdancer. Uh, but he was also a fucking really, really good graffiti writer and, you know, all-around fucking, like, hip-hop icon. Now he's, uh... Now he, he paints. He's a really cool dude, paints uh, whatever the fuck he wants and does shows around the world and just kind of keeps it low-key, it seems like, and uh, I can really appreciate that. But, uh... Back then, it was a fucking big deal to meet Doze. Uh, he had a hell of a reputation, you know, one of the the true old school 
badass motherfuckers, you know, and uh, everybody in town was talking about uh, Dozes in town, Dozes in town, you know, he's going to do a show at 111 Minute, and we're like, oh, fuck, that's that's crazy, so I was able to go down there with with Allie, and he he was there, he was literally in the basement of 111 Minna, and he was painting the stuff that he was going to show in his, I think it was his first solo show in San Francisco, and uh, I was fucking really impressed. I just remember tripping out on how just free and, and uh, like, skilled with the brush, uh, with the paint on canvas he was. And uh, he was very nice to me and didn't have to be. <laughs> uh, he was mad cool. Uh, I think even uh, Allie uh, got him to do a mural in the loft that she lived in. Uh, and I got to kick back and watch him do that, too. And that was fucking amazing. I, I don't know how much she paid him for that, but he just showed up with some black paint and a brush. Um, and she had this, like like I say, it was probably a 20 by 30 foot wall, but it was inside. It was fucking crazy. This gorgeous, gigantic doze mural inside a loft. Like, fucking, what the fuck? Crazy baller status. Fucking Allie. So, yeah. She hooked that shit up, and that shit was fucking so sick. I remember just going over there sometimes and just pulling a chair over so I could just stare at that mural and smoke joints while she was, like, working on stuff. I just was so fucking just mind-blown, you know? Uh, I I looked at the details on this, but uh, it looks like on May 15th of 97, uh, or not May 15th, the 25th, was the first Future Primitive Sound Session. Uh, it was this, like, how do I explain it? It was like a hip-hop-based DJ, like scratch DJs, um, but they would play all kinds of music, not just hip-hop per se. They might play some electro-funk um, maybe even some, like, spoken word shit, you know, just weird jazz breaks, um, and they had really cool visuals, kind of like a rave, but different, uh, that's all I could say, and, uh, what was the name of the place? It changed names so many times over the years, um, I'm sure somebody's right now like dude it's called blah 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 and i'm like blowing it uh but it was it had like a part of the decoration on the walls were these uh excerpts from a mural that twisted it was a red wall that went around i believe the museum of modern art when it was being built and uh somehow somebody had gotten a bunch of these panels from that uh project and they were up inside the the club um, I, if I remember right, it was on Divisadero Street. Uh, shit, I wish I could remember the name of the place. But anyway, the Future Primitive Sound Sessions were fucking sick. And I think at that first one, Doze did like a live painting while the DJs were scratching and stuff. And he had like lights on him and shit. And oh my God, that shit was fucking crazy. And they ended up doing a whole bunch of those Future Primitive Sound Sessions um, later on. And they were always just so sick we all get so excited um to check them out 
and it would attract a really interesting crowd. You you never knew who you were going to run into there because there was a lot of people that were into them that were not into hip hop per se, but fucking loved those damn parties. Um, I'm trying to think that back then too, I I was still doing a lot of uh, graffiti, of course. I remember going to uh, Emeryville a whole bunch with uh, my buddy Buku, Buku One. Um, 97 was a big year kind of painting with Buku. Uh, I painted with uh, Dalek too, at Dalek 2020 on Instagram. Um, I'm not sure what year exactly I met Dalek. It must have been around there, um, maybe a few years earlier, but I have photos of stuff that we painted together in 97 it seemed like we painted a few times together both like kind of daytime chill spots and we definitely did some night stuff and tunnels and whatnot um and he was doing the the space monkeys it's like his signature character um he was doing them you know mixed in with my letters and just kind of having fun uh, he, he didn't do letters very much he, he could do letters really good if i remember right but uh didn't really fuck with him too much kind of let me do that and he would add his characters but uh, i loved painting with him he's like about the same height as me actually i bet you he's a little taller um so it was just like these two big white dudes fucking teaming up to do these weird ass graffiti to pieces <laughs> and people really loved his characters they were always like pumped when i would paint with him um the, the, that year too i was kind of wanting to branch out a little bit stylistically in my graffiti and uh needed to kind of rattle myself loose of the symmetrical style that i had kind of worked on for a few years and just kind of it became a uh, like an exercise that got old basically so i was trying to completely break free of symmetry and uh even the word giant to be honest i was really in a transition time where i would ask uh if there was people at the wall say or i was with friends i would ask each of them for a single letter or a number and then whatever you know if there was five people there they might say j r k five z and that's what i would paint on the wall just on the spot just let it rip and i would try to do it in a way that was interesting and kind of complex so that people would recognize the style would recognize that i did it even though they might not be able to read it or not might not believe what they're reading <laughs> again because i wasn't writing regular words so it was really made people second guess like what the fuck i was doing um and sometimes i would even add these little almost like uh, architectural uh notes around the piece um which were kind of further confusing to people and uh often i would even the stuff that was kind of uh informational that i would add at the end just like words and things i might write them backwards or in a different order um and i was still integrating characters into the whole thing and doing a full background um but i really didn't uh yeah it was just an interesting time i wasn't concerned about writing giant on everything 
I just kind of put that in my back pocket for a while. I did this other shit. Um, I did a... I went to San Diego at some point that year and ended up doing a piece with Shepard Ferry. Um, I think that was the first time that we had done anything together on a wall. And we just went to uh, the Fashion Valley Yard. Um, it's just like these big uh, concrete walls that hold up a freeway uh, near a river. And uh, to this day, it's a, a spot where people can go and just kind of paint any time of day or night. And uh, there's no police down there or anything. You might run into some sketchy homeless people, so you got to keep your eyes peeled. But uh, it's pretty chill. And they're nice big walls. And uh, Shepard met me down there, and there was a whole bunch of us. Probably Persuade was down there. Uh, maybe Zane, too, because I ended up painting with... Uh, persuading zane on that trip in escondido i believe in a, a like a tunnel spot that was really hard to photograph but it was a really fucking super sick wall that we did and if i remember right the local writers i can't remember if they painted over it right away or they were really digging it i guess i can't really remember that part but in any case uh i'll post the some ex excerpts of the the piece i did with shepherd because again it was that kind of abstract style and we just kind of made it up on the spot, and I had him put up some posters, and then I put the lettering kind of around his posters, and some of his posters would go on top of the piece, and we just kind of fucked around, and it was really fucking cool. He didn't, you know, I don't think he was thinking he'd get anything out of it, you know? <laughs> like, it was just this fun wall to do, you know, for the for the graffiti community because they're basically the only ones that were going to see it. You know, it wasn't like out on the street or anything. And I gave Ship a lot of credit for coming down and, and hooking it up. You know, I'd, I'd known him for a few years. I think we met in like, I believe it was 93 or 4, um, and I believe it was at the ASR trade show in San Diego. And uh, when I first met him, everything was cool. Uh, people at the time were tripping because we were both basically going by giant. Uh, but I wasn't really tripping on him at all because he was just doing stickers and posters and I was doing, you know, like real spray can graffiti and he really never did that. So I felt like we didn't have any problem. And later on, he started using Obey more than giant. I really appreciated, you know, a bit of that separation. I thought that was cool. But in any case... Uh, that was cool painting with Shep. I, I think that year too, I got invited to St. Louis, uh, to paint the, uh, the seawall that, uh, it's like a flood wall next to the, I guess it's the Mississippi river. <laughs> what the fuck do I know? Uh, yeah, St. Louis. Um, and, uh, they invited people from all over the country at the time, the seawall was mostly just uh, bare concrete. Uh, there hadn't even been murals or anything painted on it ever. And it had a lot of, like, little bullshit graffiti on it. I think the city was kind of tired of it just looking like shit. And uh, some enterprising people there in St. Louis were like, yo, can we get permission and we can invite all these graffiti muralists from around the country and we can, you know, repaint this wall over the course of a weekend, you know, and do the whole thing. It'll be like, you know, a miles-long mural. And that's exactly how it went down. 
it was fucking incredible. I feel like, I think it was the first one in 97. And uh, I did a piece that said Dukkha, D-U-H-K-H-A. It's a a Buddhist uh, word. I believe it's... uh, I believe it's a Sanskrit word, but it uh, it means uh, suffering, but it's or discomfort. Uh, sometimes suffering is kind of uh, I don't know, like an, uh, a harsh interpretation of the word, but it's basically the suffering that uh, comes because we identify with an ego. Uh, you know, it's a basic Buddhist idea that if we can get past our ego and uh, be egoless that we find a lot more ease in life, that our, our ego is actually uh, a thing that we have to kind of uh, work with, you know, not just let it uh, rule. You know, it has a, a purpose, but it doesn't have to be the driver. Uh, dukkha, and I have that same word tattooed backwards uh, just under my throat. Um, so when I look in a mirror, it reads uh, correctly to me. Is, you know, so it's a, a nice reminder to keep the ego in check. But um, it was bizarre. I don't know what the fuck I was doing, but I should have just done a big giant piece and called it a day. But <laughs> I did this big spiky, weird duka piece with like greens and yellows. And uh, I dug it, you know. It was my contribution to Paint Lewis. But there was definitely a lot of... Uh, People that did way cooler shit than I did. <laughs> I think Saber was there and did a. I mean, I reach as high as high as I can reach is about eight foot, and that's pretty high. That's that's a normal wall. <clears throat> and most of the people along the wall had done stuff maybe eight to twelve feet high, and the actual wall is probably twenty feet high. Fucking Saber was out there with rollers and extension poles doing a, a top-to-bottom, like, I guess you'd call it semi-wild style, <laughs> top-to-bottom on this fucking seawall. Oh, my God. I, I feel like I remember watching him work on the S and the A, and then the next day he was working on the B, and every time I would drive by it, he'd be a little further along, and it was just like, what the fuck? This guy's graffiti is on such another level. And uh, I hung out with a bunch of dudes that were from El Paso, from kind of Texas in general. And uh, we were, I don't even remember where I was staying or where I was, I can't remember that shit. I might have had a hotel room. I think I did. But we didn't really know what to do on the local scene or where to go. And it was just all these fucking graffiti writers and... uh, as a pack, it was just, like, so sketchy to have, like, 80 graffiti writers together walking around. So, luckily, the Texas guys had met these local girls that had a swimming pool at their apartment. And so, I rolled out with those dudes <laughs> and fucking chilled with these girls and uh, avoided all the, the fucking chaos of the the graffiti guys downtown. And uh, I just remember being super appreciative of these girls that they fucking uh, got us out of there. And uh, that was really fun, though. I felt really lucky to have been able to experience that. Um, Back in... uh, I got back into San Francisco 
and I'm looking, and it's like about summertime. Um, I remember seeing a guy named Ed Rush. He's a, a British uh, drum and bass producer, and uh, his name is like uh, it's like it sounds like Head Rush, um, which was like you know if you're doing drugs, you get like a head rush. You know, but if you say it, if you're British, you just say Ed Rush, you know, you drop the H. And uh, I always thought that was a fucking cool name. He calls himself Ed Rush. But uh, that dude was sick as fuck. If any of you are into drum and bass, uh should check him out. It's maybe a little dated now, but it was very technical. It was very different than kind of the raga jungle style that was predominant at the time, I'd say. Um, and... Uh, yeah, that shit was super fucking sick. And I, I think, I'm trying to think what that was. I guess it was the next year I saw him a whole bunch when I moved to London. Actually, it was later in 97. I'll get into that a little bit, moving to London. But I ended up getting to see him play a whole bunch. But I remember that San Francisco show was really fucking super sick. And all my friends were there. We got high shit on E. And yeah, it was a, it was a, a sweat fest. Um in uh September of that year I I I don't know if it was exactly September of that year but there was a there weren't a lot of drum and bass parties there was plenty of house music parties techno stuff um funk uh rare groove hip hop of course then the the whole uh, turntablist scratch guys had their own scene um, but the drum and bass scene didn't have a lot going on, and a group of girls actually started a night called Eclectic, um, that was kind of billed as an all-girl DJ drum and bass night, and I was all fucking for it. I don't give a fuck, really, what gender you're, you are, <laughs> you know, if you throw a good drum and bass party, but it was fucking super sick to see uh ladies uh behind the decks fucking killing it on a regular basis and uh i must say that that party was fucking amazing i think the the first one that i went to was at kate o'brien's which was a pub down in soma and they had like a upstairs that they would kind of clean out for dj nights and whatnot uh to get new people there and what you know check it out it was in a really you know like an irish pub you know but it had a fucking bomb ass night i i think later on they moved it um a few blocks down in one of the little alley streets i, I forget where i forget what address that was it might have been on minna street just down a little further but anyway uh that shit was fucking super rad i i definitely enjoyed that i went as much as i could i think it was a weekly i, I but i can't exactly remember but that was kind of my soundtrack for 97 was like straight up like British drum and bass. I was just super, super, super into it. Um, and again, I was working at Think Skateboards. Um, I'd been there for almost four years at that point or almost exactly four years. And I was kind of getting tired of it. Uh, it had been building for a few years you know, it's like once I learned how to do the skateboard graphics and interact with the skaters and, 
you know, create a nice product. It's like, well, you know, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Like I've kind of got this figured out and there's got to be more to life than just doing these, cutting out these ruby lift color uh, separations and making these illustrations for the skaters. And, you know, it just, uh, I don't know, it, it just started to get old and I started to feel like I needed to, to move on and there was other people that were friends of mine that really wanted my job um and at each time I would kind of get a little disgruntled and I'd bring it up with uh my boss he would usually send me across the street to high speed productions to meet with Fausto Vitello who was the the main owner uh of Thrasher magazine Slap magazine at the time I'm not sure if Juxtapose was around by then, but he owned that too, and he owned everything like real skateboards, think skateboards, venture trucks, Spitfire wheels. He was a part owner in all of that stuff. He was like the kingpin. Um, so when I would get disgruntled, they'd send me over to talk to Fausto, and usually Fausto would just be like, what's going on, you know? And I would just explain, I'm just kind of getting bored with the job. I feel like I could make more money and do more interesting stuff elsewhere. And he would always give me a raise, usually at least a dollar an hour um, raise and try to get across to me that he really personally appreciated my contribution because he really thought that my artwork was making him a lot of money and uh, was just cool with me. He was kind of a hard ass to a lot of people, but... I think he genuinely um, appreciated what I did and knew I didn't really give a fuck and would just quit kind of whenever I felt like it, you know. So as long as he could keep me there was good. So that happened maybe, that honestly happened maybe five or six times where I would get mad at one of the owners at Think and just be like, well, fuck this, I don't need this shit. This is fucking stupid. I, I'm going to fucking quit fuck this and they'd be like mike calm down calm down please calm down will you please go talk to fausto and i'd be like fine whatever and i'd go talk to fausto and he's like dude don't quit How, do you need another dollar an hour he even uh let me go on a a vacation <laughs> he he gave me extra money and gave me two weeks off so i could go see my girlfriend in england at the time and uh, <laughs> it's just one of those things. He made me feel valued. But at a certain point in uh, the latter part of 97, I was fucking over it. and we just didn't care anymore. And eventually I did leave Think. Um, and I really set my sights on London. I was super into the drum and bass scene, as I've mentioned a few times in just this podcast, and really wanted to go to the source and felt like as a, an artist, I should be able to kind of be able to go anywhere that I can sit down and make a piece of artwork or make a drawing and be able to send it uh, to a client or something and get paid and keep my bank account in the U.S. and, you know, uh, be able to withdraw from the banks in England. And I had it all kind of worked out. Um, so I, I started making that happen. And it was probably about September I started to mention to Allie that um, I wanted to move to London. 
and the, you know I would I left to think and was just like I I want to go for it and uh she was bummed of course but at the same time understood where I was at in my career and was like you could probably do really good things in London yeah I guess you should try but she couldn't come with me she she had big responsibilities big clients at that point and just she couldn't come and uh but she knew it was coming you know that at the you know I think I moved there in early December of 97 so there was quite a few months there that she knew I was gonna leave and it got a little more tense and things as time went on and it, it started to hurt her feelings more and more and more that I was actually going to just leave. Um, <laughs> but uh, I did have a fucking um, sick going away party that my friends threw me. We we started out, I, I think, at a place called The Chameleon. Uh, it was a bar on uh, Valencia Street. Uh, it changed names a whole bunch of times over the years, too. But I, I think we started there and had the whole crew there. I remember Jace was there, Soap, Felon, uh, all our little crew of, of homegirls, uh, Natalie and uh, Sarah, Chloe. I think my buddy uh, Bob Licky was there, and our friend Juice. Uh, I think uh, uh, Force was there, F-O-R-S. Uh, God, yeah, there was a whole bunch of people. My buddy Kotick Joe rolled through. Uh, and we just got fucking belligerent drunk. Uh, somebody somewhere has a great photo of soap on my shoulders in the bar, <laughs> wiling out. And uh, <coughs> I remember leaving there, fucking stupid drunk with uh, Kotick Joe, and uh, we had spray paint on us and. Uh, I think we were close to the my house and we're just like, ah, fuck it, let's let's go write some graffiti. So we went out writing and uh, we were just being so belligerent and stupid because we were just so stumbling drunk. But I remember having so much fun with him. And uh, we got back, uh, I got back to my house and uh, Kotick led me up to my bedroom, made sure I got in okay. Uh, I think he even made sure I got to my bed okay because I was stumbling so bad and uh, left me there. And I remember just maybe five minutes after he left, I had to get up because I was just spinning so crazy and I knew I wasn't going to be able to get to sleep and I, I had to go to the bathroom really bad. So I, I stumbled, literally stumbled through my house, through the living room, Noticed that there were some people there sleeping that weren't there the night before, but it wasn't tripping on it. And went into the bathroom, and I was peeing, and I passed out. And I fell kind of forward and uh, almost hit my head on the, the toilet, which could have certainly killed me because uh, I was just like dead weight. And I did smack my head pretty good on the tile floor. Uh, but not completely. I think my hand was in front of me or something that broke the fall, but it was bad. Uh, I believe I was bleeding. <laughs> uh, and there were some Irish guys in the house that were visiting. That was the guys in the living room, and they just heard me collapse and heard a slap in the bathroom, and I was like, oh, no, who's that? You know. And so they went in, and 
they uh, tried to revive me, and I wouldn't come out, but I was conscious. You know, I wasn't, uh, I was breathing. It seemed okay. Uh, so they just carefully got me uh, and carried me into the, the bedroom they saw me coming out of, hoping that that was actually my room. Because, again, they didn't know who I was. They were visitors. <laughs> so they put me back in the bed, and uh, I suffered through that night I think eventually I got some sleep and uh in the morning got up and and uh went to the bathroom and uh all the it was like four Irish guys literally from Ireland and uh they had funny accents and they were they just sort of introduced themselves to me with a big laugh and were like we saved you last night you know and you were you were really on one and I was like fuck guys thank you so much that was sketchy as fuck <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah that was that i started packing up my shit get, getting rid of stuff and uh i guess uh god what was that i, I like i said i guess it was early december uh i hopped on a plane i don't know if i had a return ticket i don't know if you could get away with that back then if you could just fly one way to europe but i uh i flew out there I went uh, right to uh, my buddy Tom's place uh, in Wandsworth is the neighborhood. Uh, I had gone to London in 1990, and I met Tom. Uh, he answered an ad in a skateboard magazine. I was asking for a pen pal and a guide in London because I wanted to visit, and he answered the ad. And uh, I went out there and visited him and his mom, and they were mad cool, and I stayed with them for a week. And then uh, I went back out there to London in 94 uh, en route to visit my girlfriend at the time who was in uh, Exeter, England, going to college. And I stayed with Tom again uh, on that trip. And uh, he had lived in San Francisco for a while too and uh, we were really tight and uh, he uh, had always said you know if you ever want to stay in London more long term there's an extra bedroom at the house in London so you know if you ever want to do that like I'd love to have you man it'd be great to have you be my roommate and uh, I had met his mother and she was mad fucking cool so uh yeah, I was just like, fuck, and she wasn't even going to charge me any rent, nothing. So I was like, fuck, I, why not just move to London and figure it out? Even if I am broke, I can pull it off if I'm not paying rent, you know? <laughs> so I left for London, and uh, you could go buy the house even. It's 12 Westover Road. I still remember the address because I, I wrote to them so much in uh, Wandsworth, SW18. <laughs> I doubt they're there anymore. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was that was my home uh, for, I guess, probably six or seven months. I think I left in, like, June or July of 98. Um, it was probably not a great idea to move to London in December, uh, considering how shitty it is in London in the winter. Uh, 
but I didn't really care. It was just time to leave, time to do something new, new adventure. Uh, so I struck out. Um, I ended up hanging out a lot in the neighborhood uh, at first, exploring Clapham Junction. Uh, I hope some of you have been to London or are from London, so you'll recognize some of these place names. But uh, if you've ever seen the movie A Clockwork Orange, um, the gangsters in that movie, the Droogs, they beat up a homeless alcoholic under uh, an overpass that has these like angled walls. It's like a 45 degree angle and then it goes up to vertical and then there's the roof of the the kind of overpass above you. It's like a pedestrian path that uh, you could use to get uh, under a freeway, basically. And it was... Uh, a place that I recognized right away as soon as I got there when I was skating with Tom through the neighborhood and was like, oh, fuck. And it, it had this, uh, I think they killed the guy in the movie, so it has this like really ominous uh, feel when you're down there. But it was a really cool skate spot because you could go up onto the angled banks and then ride up onto the vertical wall and come back down. That was some badass shit at the time. And uh, I think I pulled that off a few times even myself. Uh, I was a pretty decent skateboarder. I wasn't fucking amazing. I was, like, shop-sponsored at one point, but I was never fucking even remotely close to being a professional or anything. I was just, like, a, a good, solid amateur skateboarder, but I, I sure loved it, and it was pretty much the only thing I did in London uh, just because I was broke. I had very, very little money. I had no job. I couldn't get a job in London, uh, but I was able to do graphics for different companies like uh, Tribal Gear and 12-Ounce Profit, stuff like that, um, that was able to keep me afloat uh, while I was there. And I was also getting some little cash jobs and stuff. Um, I'll talk about that more in the next podcast. I had some scams going with friends and whatnot. But uh, early on, it was just a lot of skateboarding. Uh, so much skateboarding actually that in the six months that I lived there, I lost 30 pounds. <laughs> I was just skating and not eating. And, uh, you know, actually I, I was, I was eating, I was just eating, you know, very little. Um, I was, you know, trying to cut back cause I had, I had so little money. I remember going to the grocery store a lot just cause it was so much cheaper if I cooked for myself. And I was vegetarian at the time. And I remember discovering they had uh, a variety of vegetarian sausages. They had like 12 different kinds, and they were all so fucking good. And I just couldn't believe that they didn't have them in America because my fellow vegetarian friends would have been tripping. But I was, I was loving that. There was uh, a few things like that that I just couldn't get in America. Um, even at like... Uh, Burger King in London in 97, I could get a black bean burger, like a veggie burger, and that was unheard of in the States at the time, if I remember correctly. They were way ahead of that, um, oddly, um, but I had a, I had really good stuff like that. I, I had really good uh, veggie options, too, at the kebab shops where they'd sell, like, falafels and gyros and stuff like that, they would have a bunch of different burgers, patties, that were uh, different vegetable kind of combinations and things that I'd never heard of. 
Some of them were good. Some of them were kind of terrible, but I, I tried them all. Uh, ate a lot of falafel uh, when I lived there. That was that was definitely on a on the regular. I did eat a lot of fish and chips actually too. Um, I guess I shouldn't say I was vegetarian because I was eating fish once in a while. It wasn't often, uh, but I was living in London, and I if I was gonna have uh, any kind of flesh, it would be fish, and uh, I I did enjoy that, and I really enjoyed the the big the, they put they like a roll a newspaper into a kind of a cone shape, and then they fill it with French fries, and they'll put uh like uh, malt vinegar or whatever the fuck you want all over the fries. It's so fucking good. Hits a spot when you're fucking wasted in the middle of the night in London, <laughs> looking for stuff because like. The, I remember trying the pizza in London a few times and I would just get like a cheese slice and it would come out and it would have corn on it. And I'd be like, what the fuck? Who puts corn on pizza? And I remember asking the people in London, like, what's up with the corn on the pizza? And they would just laugh. Like, I don't know why we do that. But yeah, I don't know if they still do that in London. If you just buy a cheese slice that has corn on it. But I thought that was so fucking bizarre and disgusting. <laughs> uh, but I remember uh, every morning I would uh, go over to Clapham. I'd walk over or skate over to Clapham Junction Station, which was the main kind of uh, outlet uh, to go into central London or, you know, catch a, a suburban train to south London or anywhere in England, really. Uh, but I would usually uh, grab a, a cheese scone and a coffee, and I think it was 99 pence. Uh, just under one pound, which I don't know what that is these days. It, it's like I don't know. Back then, it was probably a dollar sixty or two dollars or something like that. Um, but that would that would fill me up for the morning. That's all I would have, and I'd hop on the train, and I'd usually have to go to Victoria Station in like uh the old part of Central London, and from there I would catch a a subway to different destinations. Um for like little adventures you know of course i was looking for the all this the super sick graffiti um because uh shit by 97 i was really doing it as a graffiti writer in the bay area that was kind of you know my heyday was like 93 to 97 so i got to london as kind of a not a veteran but i was a solid player in the game <clears throat> and i knew from previous trips and also the book uh spray can art listed some areas in london uh where you could usually find graffiti um one one was uh, westbourne park station another was ladbroke grove um all around there i would just kind of hop fences with my camera and just look for stuff and try to keep out an eye out for the local sketchies you know um, I remember seeing lots of pieces uh, by Mode 2 and Bando, uh, like uh, the Crow Angels crew from uh, Spray Can Art. Um, I remember seeing a lot of really cool uh, graffiti by a guy that wrote Fume, F-U-M-E, did these gigantic, uh, really readable silver straight letters on the London uh, subway and train system walls, like lots and lots and lots. Um, I remember just loving seeing him up all over the fucking place. Um, I remember to, uh, 
eventually I connected with uh, some people that were posting photos of uh, British graffiti on graffiti.org, uh, the website, uh, Art Crimes it was called. I don't know if it's still online, but it was the source for graffiti flicks and information back then. And uh, I was able to hook up with a few of those guys, and they were able to tell me, like, where to get paint because there wasn't, like, you know, paint like there is now, like, actual brands made for spray can writers, you know. So I was using a lot of auto paint. Um, they showed me I could steal it pretty easy from, uh, I forget what store it was, but the brand was called Auto K, and they were pretty easy to steal because they were, like, small cans. It was, like... Uh, what would they be? They were like a third or a quarter the size of a regular spray can, so you needed a whole bunch of them to do a piece. Um, so it was kind of a pain in the ass because you'd have to have a lot of these dumb little cans just to do something. But the paint was really good, and it came in really good colors. And I remember, too, somebody, it was probably Sir, S-E-R, but this was, I guess, a little later. I think he taught me about this the next year, but just to get... Uh, the which silver paint was the good stuff for painting on the, the bare brick of the, the subway lines along the walls, along the subways, because usually spray paint would just soak right into stone, uh, but certain silver will sit right on the surface and stay shiny for a long time, which is perfect for those kind of stone walls. And he also got me to use uh, black undercoat paint so it's the paint that you'd put underneath your car to prevent it from getting jacked up by rocks and stuff it was incredibly thick it, it wouldn't drip it would kind of just ooze it was the weirdest shit it would it was super super thick that's all i remember it was just amazing it was like painting with like liquid rubber and uh the white we would use too was for uh, radiators it was like super high heat white uh, spray paint and it was like ultra glossy um and that would sit right on top of the stone really nice too so once i had the kind of technical lowdown from the local writers i was able to uh, participate and started going to different spots often by myself often in the morning too and uh people would suspect somebody to be out uh, writing graffiti, you know. And I was always with my um, skateboard because, <laughs> you know, that was all I had. And uh, I hadn't really been skating every day for a few years when I worked at Think, and then all of a sudden I'm in London and I got kind of nothing better to do. So I skated every single day. Um and a lot, like, throughout the whole day. I remember loving uh, to go up to uh, Camden Town and visit the Camden Market and uh, try to find uh, some good mixtapes, uh, drum and bass stuff, mostly jungle, some techno, some house. I was kind of open to anything that was super tight. Um, but there were DJs that had these little stands in the market stalls, and... Uh, it was just such a funny scene because it would be, you know, maybe uh, a few rows of maybe 20 little vendor stalls in an, in an uh, kind of a, on each row. And, you know, so like maybe 40 stalls in a row on both sides. 
and they'd have stuff like blankets and clothes and radios and uh, toys and it's just everybody had like a, a little thing that they specialized in. A lot of food vendors too. And then every once in a while you'd hear some crazy fucking bass and jungle coming from part of the market. And I would just kind of follow my ear over there. And sure enough, there'd be some DJs there with just, you know, all kinds of tapes on display on their table. And they'd be playing some of the tapes through just monster speakers. I, f I felt bad for the people that had the stalls next to them. Um, I hope they enjoyed it. But they would play the fucking jungle stuff like super fucking loud. I loved it, of course. I was, I loved it. Um, and I would buy up all their fucking tapes. You know, I was just a, a fiend for that shit. And uh, often I would go up to, uh, I think it's called Can Cantelows, C-A-N-T-E-L-O-W-E-S. Uh, it was like a skateboarding park kind of thing. Uh, right near Camden Town, if I remember correctly. And uh, it just had this, like, squared kind of, uh, kind of like a pyramid kind of thing, but the chop was topped off, so it had a flat top on it. It had nice little smooth transitions up to it. It had a nice big angled back wall, and it was a little bit downhill from where you'd enter. And it was just super, super simple little spot, but it was really smooth. And uh, there was a lot of different angles and things you could hit and hips. <clears throat> and I just loved it. I think a lot of my London skater friends were like, that place is kind of boring, dude. <laughs> but I just, I loved it. I would take the train all the way up there from South London just to ride that thing for a few hours and learn some new tricks on it. Um, I would also go over to uh, a place called Stockwell. In Brixton, which was not actually far from where I was staying in Wandsworth, that was a quick little bus ride over to Stockwell from my house, and uh, that place was super fun. I think that's still there too. It was kind of a '70s style skate park. Um, it was really smooth, but not like uh, glassy, not uh, not like polished. Um, so you kind of needed. If I remember right, like super hard wheels weren't great there. You wanted something that was a little softer so you could get some speed going. But uh, there was a lot of really fun places where you could like push into like a bowl. And their bowls were like uh, rounded out on the top. They didn't have coping or like a real 90 degree edge. It was all kind of roll in style. And uh, you could kind of roll in to some of the big bowls really fast and just blast out. So it was kind of like having a like launch ramp kind of style, um, which I really enjoyed too from skating in the 80s. And uh, yeah, that place was sick and always full of fucking super sick locals. Um, there was a place called Kennington Bowl too that I loved. It's just like a rectangular angled bowl. Uh, had round top on it too again. Uh, it's been changed a lot since, like DIY style, but I love just uh, doing figure eight carves in Kennington Bowl just for hours. That was my shit. And I remember there were trees around it too, so you could hide in the shade. A lot of those London spots, it was kind of nowhere to hide. Um, except for, I guess, Meanwhile. I used to go to a place called Meanwhile 2, uh, right near the Royal Oak Station. 
in London. And it's under uh, like a freeway, so it's uh, covered. So when it would rain, which was really fucking often that winter, I would just take the train up to Royal Oak and skate over to Meanwhile 2 and uh, skate that place for hours and just hang out. And Often I would meet other skaters and other graffiti writers too because that whole area was uh, super blasted with graffiti. I did uh, a bunch of throw-ups at Meanwhile, uh, even myself, that ran for years. Um, but that, that, was a, that place was so fucking fun. Uh, South Bank, too, right along the Thames River. Uh, that was a popular spot when it was raining, although it would get wet sometimes. The water would leak down onto the kind of skate park area here and there. Uh, whereas at Meanwhile, I don't remember water ever getting in there. So it was like a, a, a really, really good spot for me. Um, remember tripping out a lot, too, on the street fashion there. It's like... San Francisco doesn't really have that as much. It's kind of like back then it was like a uniform of just like jeans or chinos, Adidas sneakers of some sort, uh, some sort of white or black t-shirt, a hoodie usually black, and a, a messenger bag. The messenger bag was the big giveaway that somebody was from the Bay Area. Because... <laughs> It's pretty much just the the Bay Area kids that were wearing messenger bags when they were traveling, especially. I remember seeing people with them um, in airports in different parts of the world, and I would walk right over and be like, hey, man, you from San Francisco? And they'd look at me funny like, yeah, how'd you know that? And I'm like, you got a messenger bag, dog. <laughs> we all do. Uh, it was just the, the go-to thing. I mostly had Timbuktu bags, um, but there was a a lot of other ones that were a lot better. But uh, that was just a funny little detail. You know, all of us would have uh, messenger bags as graffiti writers, not backpacks and things. Uh, but like I say, it wasn't like, I don't know, super stylish. Not not like New York City, where they're really like thinking about fashion and thinking about how they look and uh, how they're presenting themselves. And San Francisco is just not that vibe, really. It's more like showing off with your tattoos or your piercings or your hairstyle or something more than your fashion. But in London, it was fucking bananas with the fashion. Like, uh, the, the combinations that people were wearing, it was just fucking wild. And I loved that often people would be wearing clothing from, like, five different eras at the same time. Like, some shirt from the 1950s and some shoes from the 1970s and, uh, uh, you know, like a hat from the 1990s, and you know what I'm saying. It's just like uh, it's such a neat mix, and I feel like Americans kind of shop a lot more like seasonally and don't take care of their clothing, so they they rarely have anything that's more than a year or two old. Um, but that was something I really dug in London. Uh, I remember going. Uh, <coughs> I can't remember what neighborhood that was in. But I remember just out, I'd be out creeping, just checking shit out, looking for inspiration. And uh, sometimes I would stop by Black Market Records. And I think it was at Black Market that they had this basement. And in the basement, they only had drum and bass and jungle down there. And on the weekends, I'd go down there and uh, it would be pretty packed. Um, and... The, you know, people were trying to shop, so you had to, like, be really cool and not piss them off if you were actually just there to listen to the records. 
because people like producers and stuff would come down into that basement and they'd know the DJ and be like, yo, bud, check this out. This is a new uh, track I just had pressed yesterday. You know, you want to check it out? And they would like uh, get drop those things in the mix. So for a person like me who was really into drum and bass and whatnot, I was hearing uh records by you know for the first time before producers had even made uh real copies of them sometimes i was hearing dub plates and that meant too the producer was in the room so it was like oh fuck so i remember doing that quite a few times going to the basement there again i hope i wish it was i knew if i think it was black market records um but uh regardless that that whole scene was was so fucking sick to me um i'm not sure what year they started doing uh uh producers called metalheads that do drum and bass music uh led by a guy named goldie who was also a famous graffiti writer from london and i i saw some of his stuff here and there he really wasn't up much um but you know everybody knew who goldie was and gave him his propers but he had a, a club night at a at a place called the Blue Note that I went to. Um, I think it was more '98 that I was going there, and I really can't remember when they started. But that was fucking sick too, because it was a really really small place. It was on a Sunday night, uh, which was bizarre, because most of the clubs would be on Friday and Saturday nights, so that the people, you know, could get some sleep and get to work on time on Monday, and. Uh, yeah, Metalheads was just like, fuck all that. We're doing it on Sunday night. <laughs> and I didn't have a job, so I didn't give a fuck. Uh, but I remember it, it usually got out by midnight, so it wasn't like a super late night thing anyway. But it was really just for the sappy people. I remember a few times almost getting turned away at the door uh, just because there were so many people trying to get in and the door guy's looking at me like, bro, like, nah, fucking relax you know it's not gonna happen tonight and i'm like dude i came all the way from wandsworth what the fuck what are you talking about i'm from america dude i'm not from here let me in and they'd be like all right all right um but that shit was so fucking sick there was a guy named loxy l-o-x-y that was my fucking favorite and i got to see him play quite a few times there and it was just like this i i, I don't even know if it was like a basement literally uh, it had a really, really low ceiling. It would get super fucking hot in there to where the uh, there'd be like drips coming off the ceiling because it would get so humid that the walls would start to get wet and the, the you'd get dropped on by the, from the ceiling. It was kind of disgusting, but <laughs> at the same time, the music was so fucking good. Uh, I remember uh, seeing uh, Fabio and Groove Rider too. They had a club night. Um, again, that might not have been till 98 that they had theirs. I, I can't remember, but that was a whole thing too. Cause they had like, like metalheads was like fucking hard ass, scary, like belligerent drum and bass music, really, really sonically powerful, like hit you in the chest, you know, and aggressive, you know, kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's 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 like British hip hop to me. It's just it's got this extra edge edge to it that American hip hop doesn't have. It's a different thing. 
but Fabio and Groove Riders Night was like intelligent techno, or I forget what it were, not techno, but drum and bass. Uh, they call it stuff like that. It was a lot mellower, dreamy, atmospheric, kind of like LTJ Buckham. He was doing a lot of stuff like that too. But I would go to like uh, both of their club nights, and they were they were so different. And often too, there would be barely anybody there. Even back then, and it was such a big deal. You'd hear drum and bass on the street all the time. But you'd go to the club nights, and it'd be pretty quiet, you know. Whereas I'd go to like uh, techno clubs or trip hop or something, and they'd be packed to the gills. I always thought that was really strange that even though it seemed like uh, drum and bass was just this huge fucking phenomenon, you know. It's like on the street, it was still a pretty small community. Uh, people really knew each other. Um, I'm getting up towards an hour and a half, and that's usually when these recordings get fucked up. So uh, I think I, it's actually a great place to start, uh, or to stop, I mean, uh, and then I can start up again with uh, 98 next time. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed that little ride. It's so weird sitting here stoned talking to myself. So I sure appreciate uh, that you listen and comment and uh, appreciate it. I, I run into so many people when I, I travel. I was just on the road for two weeks and uh, ran into so many people that were like, yo, dude, I love the podcast, man. I wish you did more episodes. And I was like, hi, you know, you know I try. <laughs> so here I am trying again. Uh, but I do appreciate it, and uh, yeah, like I say, I'll, I'll have the next episode out soon. Thanks. Peace.